So I have a question. How many books, tell the person next to you, uh, approximately how many books you own at your house right now? Tell the person next to you, is it 30, 75, 200? How many books do you own? All right. Now, I blame Amazon Prime. I can get anything in two days. It's so bad. There's a book that's coming to my door every single day. Joel's saying, did you order this? <laughs> it's just so tempting. In the year uh, 1450, all books were hand copied. They were hand copied, and it took years to write out. So if you have 75 books about in your home, that's probably the same size of a typical library in a European town in the 1400s. That was the whole library. Each Bible in that time took 12 years for a scribe to write with five scribes writing, taking different parts of it. 12 years for them to have it. Consequently, all the books in Western Europe totaled roughly the same number in one modern public library today. All the books in Western Europe. But by the year 1500, something changed. Something changed. And if you're really smart, look at the person next to you and tell them what it was. All right, you called it. Gutenberg's printing press. If they said it wrong, tell them it's okay. <laughs> Gutenberg's printing press enabled this rapid printing and books began to explode into the millions. In fact, in 1500, there were 151 print shops in the city of Venice alone. In the city of Wittenberg, which is where Martin Luther resided, 100,000 Bibles were printed in a 40-year span. And so that invention changed history forever. Now, the legend is that as a little boy, uh, Gutenberg was carving his name into a wooden block on his father's workbench, and he dropped it into a bucket of ink. And when he picked it out of this purple dye, he set it on a piece of paper to dry, which caused a stamp. And 40 years later, that moment inspired him to create this metal press to print books. Among the first thing that Gutenberg published was the now famous Gutenberg Bible, which was published in 1455. And this was a two-volume Bible. So in order to carry it around, you'd have to have two separate books with you. It had 1,282 pages, and it cost roughly three years' wages for the common worker. So they had to save up three years of wages to buy a Bible. He printed 180 copies. That was his first his first go around on this expensive imported paper, and then he did 30 copies on this special cow skin or leather type material. Now to finance this, Gutenberg uh, borrowed a considerable amount of money, and when he didn't earn the money back fast enough, because people had to save to buy, save for so long to buy these Bibles, his lender declared him bankrupt, and they seized his printing press. Tragically, Gutenberg never profited from his invention of the printing press, and he died living in poverty off a small pension that the Catholic Church had given him. He never saw the impact of his success. So we're starting this new series today, and it's focused specifically on the Bible. And we're going to call it, call the series Trusted. 
Because this book, this Bible, can be trusted. And it is a gift. It's inspired and written by the Holy Spirit, God's word straight to us. It took roughly 1,500 years to write over a span of 1,500 years. It was hand-copied by manuscripts, by scribes who devoted their life to this work. There are some people in history whose entire life's career was to copy the Bible. It was translated by scholars who have devoted their lives, generations of people, to biblical languages to make sure that, that we get the correct translation. And even many, many people died so that you could hold a copy of this book in your hand and freely read it. And I think the challenges in, in our generation, in this age, is that the Bible is so readily and so cheaply available. You, you can pick up your iPhone today and download 10 apps right now and get the entire word of God. You could go to almost any department store and pick up the Bible for 888. <laughs> dollars It's in so many translations, it's in so many languages, in so many forms, that we often overlook the incredible gift that this is, that we can simply pick it up and read it. And so we're going to talk today and this week for, for several weeks here about why the Bible can be trusted. And, and my whole premise is, can we still believe that the Bible is true? Can we still believe that the Bible is true? And in order for it to have the most effectiveness for us in our lives, we really do have to settle this question. Is it just a good book full of good stories? Is it something that has lost its power in translation over time? Or can we still believe the Bible is true? Can we still trust it? And so today, I really believe that as, as believers in Jesus, fully, without any doubt, we need to stand upon the fact that the scriptures can be trusted. And that's why we're going to talk about this for a few weeks. You might be able to answer this question today. You might be able to say yes. And someone would say, why? And you would not have an answer there. You might not be able to say yes today. I'm hoping that this series moves you from one point to another, wherever you are, down the next step of your journey in this question. So Barna Research, which is this company that researches all kinds of things all around the world and the country, says that 48% of the U.S. population identifies themselves as post-Christian. 48%. I'm going to just write a lot of numbers on this board today so you can remember some of the statistics. Post-Christian means that they, they have had some context, maybe they had some faith, maybe their family had some faith, but they have decided that it cannot be trusted anymore. And honestly, with every passing year, the percentage of Americans who believe that the Bible is just another book written by men or just another good book increases. And the perception that continues to grow is that the Bible could actually be harmful. It could actually be something that if you live by its principles, you are a religious extremist. And so this statistic itself needs to motivate us that we have to be ready as believers in Jesus to be able to explain the why we trust the Bible. We have to be able to be ready to explain it. So I want to start by talking about two words today. One is the word inerrancy, and the other is inspired. Now, these two words have a link, all right? They have a connection. The word inerrancy means not errant or no error. That's what, that's what that word means. 
And biblical inerrancy is the doctrine that says the Bible is without error in all that it affirms. The Bible is without error in all that it affirms. So when we talk about and we claim that the Bible is inerrant, we have to understand that we also believe that the Bible is inspired. So these two words link together. I want to take us to 2 Timothy 2, I'm sorry, 3.16. You've probably potentially have heard this before, but it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So in Greek, God-breathed is this word, theo Neustos. Theo means theology of God. Neustos means breath or wind. Theonustos. So this term is made from two words. And this is saying that the Bible comes from God's breath. The Bible comes from God's breath. This is describing more of where the word of God came from, not how it came So the scripture isn't saying God did not breathe and manuscripts supernaturally appeared. That's not how the scripture was written. But it came from the breath of God. It was inspired by the breath of God. We see how it came in 2 Peter 1.21, where it says that men spoke, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the, word they, the Greek word they used in this passage is pharaoh. It looks like this. And that is a word that is a familiar word in, in those days, and it described a ship being carried along by the wind. A ship being carried along by the wind. So the human writers of the Bible certainly used their minds They used their personalities, the character of who they were, but the Holy Spirit carried them along in their thinking so that only his God-breathed words were recorded. Only his God-breathed words were recorded. And so inspiration means that God breathed out his word. God certainly breathed out his word, and the Holy Spirit guided the writers to be inerrant. The Holy Spirit guided the writers. And so the Bible has one author, and that author is God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But there are many, many writers, around 40 writers. So if inspired means the scripture was God-breathed, then therefore the scripture must be inerrant. Hebrews 6.18 tells us that God cannot lie, that he would, he would cease to be God if he breathed out errors or contradictions, even in the smallest way. So if all scripture is God-breathed, then it must all be without error. There's this uh, term that we use, it's called verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. And what this means is that we believe, it's a term used for biblical inerrancy, that plenary means full. It means the whole of it. It means every possible thing, all of the word of God, the whole of scripture, of scripture. Verbal means the words that God was given, okay? So the words, all the words that God gave, the fullness of all the words were inspired. The fullness of all the words were inspired. Every part of it, every single word. Now, inerrancy does not mean that sometimes you can find uh, apparent contradictions in the text, There are apparent contradictions sometimes in the text. 
But inerrancy means that these contradictions can be resolved. That with more study, with more context, with more understanding of the language, that these contradictions can be resolved. There are tons of resources out there about solving contradictions in the scripture. And I want to tell you, until you do all of that reading, you cannot stand on the argument that because you read, and this word says different than this word, that the Bible is an error. So let me just give you one example. There's, there's, sev- there's lots of examples, but let me just give you one. In the book of Mark and Luke, which were two gospel accounts, they tell a story of Jesus casting out demons and sending them into the, the swine. And they say this happened at a city called Jerasa. Then you turn over to Matthew, another gospel writer. He tells the same story, but he says that it happened at Gadara. And people look at that and they say, well, this is an obvious contradiction. This story, this, this is said it happens here. This said it happened here. This contradiction cannot be reconciled. It's in two different places. Therefore, the Bible is not inerrant and it's a legend. However, theologians and, and scholars have looked over the years and upon further study, Jerasa was a town and Gadara was a province in that time of history. And so it would be similar to Mark and Luke saying, this event that Jesus cast out these demons into the swine happened in Erie, and Matthew recording that the event happened in Pennsylvania. Are they both correct? Yes. It is not a contradiction that doesn't resolve itself, but what happens is it takes time, it takes effort, it takes for us to look into it, it takes scholars for us to look into it to resolve those things. So where Christians run into trouble is when we make sort of this circular argument with this 48% of the population, and sometimes even with ourselves, we make this argument that um, we, uh, we believe that the Bible is true because it says it's true. And we believe, we believe that we can trust it because it tells me I can trust it. And what we forget is if you're post-Christian, which is 50% of our nation, then you aren't convinced because the Bible says it, it's, it's so. That's the point of the argument. It's like saying uh, the prisoner must be innocent because he says he is. Well, if you don't trust the prisoner, then it's not innocent. So if you don't trust the God who wrote this, you won't trust that what he says is true. So the truth is, there is a wealth of textual evidence to prove that the scriptures can be trusted. And when you dig deeper into this investigation, which I have and continue to, you will find some really solid proof. And I want to challenge you in these few weeks to do some reading, to do some careful internet searching, to have some intelligent conversations, to really bring some backbone to your faith so that you're ready in season and out, which is what the scripture says, that when someone challenges you or you even challenge you, is this really true? That you're able to say something more than it's true because it says it's true. And so just today, I want to talk about, I I just can only touch on it a little bit, but I want to talk about um, these two theologians, Lee Strobel and Craig Blomberg, who tackle this issue of biblical inerrancy. And I want to talk about it a little bit this morning. And they got together and they took just a portion of the Bible. They took the Gospels or the the biographies of Jesus, and they took them through a series of, of tests. 
And I want to summarize some of those briefly this morning, uh, but I really want to encourage you to look more into this throughout your week because there's so much information that it's difficult to talk about it all, but I believe this morning we can touch on a couple things. I'm hoping to wet, wet your appetite about it. And so first they put the biographies of Jesus through something called an intention test. An intention test. The test, this test evaluates whether the writer intended the text to be historical. So, for example, um, nobody treats the boy who cried wolf as a historical story. Right? It's a story to teach a lesson. It's a legend. They don't treat it as historical. So I want to just bring us to one passage in Luke 3, 1 through 2. We're going to put it on the screen. Uh, It says, Luke is writing this. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysianus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caphus, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. It's as if Luke is saying, fact check me, I dare you. <laughs> fact check me, because I know what's going on. He, he is not saying, a long time ago, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, Jesus came to earth. He, he is using this context. He's saying, listen, let me set this chapter up. And he does things like I just showed you many times in his writing. He's saying, this is a story I'm about to tell you. It's a narrative. It actually happened. It's interesting, if you're making something up that you want people to believe, you don't pin yourself down like this. Because they can see through the details. He wants to give it merit. He wants to give it credibility. He wants this to be historical. And we see John, the New Testament writer, does the same, similar things. And it seems quite apparent that the goal of the gospel writers was to attempt to record what actually happened. And that's the intention test. That's what Blomberg and Strobel, these theologians, began to ran the gospels through. Here's another example. They put the gospels through a consistency test. A consistency test. This test asks the question, do the stories that report the same events agree with one another? You do this all the time with your children. She hit me. She hit me first. All right, both of you come here. Who hit, who hit you first, right? And it's never the same. I mean, they never tell you the actual truth, so you have to put them both in time out. That's what happens at our house anyway. But... You're you're saying, do the authors constantly contradict major parts of the retelling? And if if the the major parts are are contradictory, that is a good reason to doubt the historicity of the events. Now, as I mentioned really briefly, there are some seeming contradictions in the Gospels. However, with a careful look at the context and the language, theologians have been able to explain most of them. Josh McDowell, who is another great apologist, would say that differences— don't always equate contradictions. Okay, differences don't always equate to contradictions. We should be careful to use the either-or logic where both and may be more appropriate. We should be careful to use the either-or logic when both and logic might be more appropriate in that setting. All in all, the stories of Jesus are similar enough 
that they, these theologians passed them on the consistency test, but they're different enough that the gospel writers can't be accused of conspiring or fabricating accounts of events that never happened. Because if they were too similar, then it wouldn't even make sense that there are multiple angles. All right, here's one more. I want to highlight one more type of test. Like I said, there's a lot of these. There's a lot you can read about. This one is called the cover-up test. The cover-up test. Now, Strobel and Blomberg explain that when people testify about events that they see, that they saw, they will often try to protect themselves or others by conveniently forgetting to mention the details that are embarrassing. You know, like if you do something wrong, you just leave that part out. Or something that's hard to explain, you conveniently leave it out. Yet the Gospels contain many embarrassing details and moments about the disciples. In Matthew, they can't understand what Jesus is saying. They look ignorant and kind of dumb. And they write that about themselves. In Mark, they, they, they write down that they argue like immature siblings. They bicker at each other. James and John have an argument about who gets to sit by Jesus, like third graders on a school bus. And they record that, like of what's happening. Peter denied Jesus three times. In the Gospels, the writers were trying, if they were trying to strengthen the movement of Christianity through, through exaggerated or untrue stories, they would not have included these unattractive details. They wouldn't have put these things in. And the explanation for why those stories got included in the scripture is because they were honest and they were accurate. This is what happened, so we wrote it down. There were many more tests that, that they took the Gospels through that I won't go over this morning. These are three of the eight that they did through just the Gospels. I want to just for a moment address the Old Testament. Uh, when it comes to the Old Testament, we have the best test of all time because Jesus himself read it, quoted it, listened to it in the temple, and taught it. So if Jesus saw that it was wrong... He would have had the opportunity to correct it. He knew everything. So if he was reading the Old Testament and said, no, wait a minute. No, the Jericho walls didn't fall. Mm -mm. He would have told us. And so we have the greatest test of the Old Testament of all time because Jesus used it. So all in all, after all those tests, there is a substantial amount of evidence that proves the Bible can be trusted. Let me end with this example. Some people argue that they believe the scripture was true when it was written down. That, okay, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote their stuff down, when the Old Testament, you know, when all that stuff got written down, it was true. But how well could it have possibly been preserved? How well could it have been possibly been preserved? I mean, we are a long way from those events actually happening. And I don't know about you, but I can't remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday, Okay. So how possibly could this have been preserved for so long? And as a rule of thumb, for any particular work, the greater the number and the earlier the dating of the manuscripts, the easier it is for us to reconstruct the text closer to the original or, or identify errors in the copies. And so, and so if you're looking at, at ancient you know, um, material, you see that if there are a lot of them, you can compare and say, okay, these three people wrote this word, this fourth person wrote that word, it must be this word, right? And so the more copies you have and the closer to the date that it actually was written down, the better. 
In the first century, there was an explosion of the documents of scripture being copied and distributed all over the known world. In fact, scribes were meticulously copying and distributing the scripture to Rome, Egypt, Constantinople, all around the Mediterranean. And in, in, in history, there is actually nothing like this. There's nothing like this explosion of written material until the invention of the printing press in 1500. They said that in first century, the scripture went viral. People were writing it and writing it and writing it because it was true and it was inerrant and it was inspired and they were sending it all over to as many places as the known world. Come and see. We have written down what the Holy Word of God is. Will you see it? And people were writing and writing and, and spending their whole lives doing that. And historians have a hard time nailing down the exact number, but they estimate that 15 to 20,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts of the ancient version of the New Testament have been discovered. Combine that with the Old Testament manuscripts that have been found, and there are more than 66,000 copies of manuscripts and scrolls of the Old Testament and the New Testament today. So we have so many things to compare it to. In fact, if you compare this number to other ancient texts, the next closest amount of copies we have of anything is Homer's Iliad, which is a, a work that he wrote around 400 BC. We have about 2,000 copies of that. Look at the difference. Nobody ever questions if Homer's Iliad is exactly how it was supposed to be. But yet we have 66,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts that we can work from. Historians today are typically elated when we have a double-digit number of copies of any ancient work, and they count those as accurate. And so, with these 66,000 manuscripts and scrolls, we have been able to compare and contrast and analyze and make sure that the scripture has been preserved for 2,000 years as you read it today. When I traveled to Israel last year, one of the most fascinating stops was when we pulled over on the side of the road and the guide pointed up at this brown drab mountain. I think I have a picture of it um, here. And we had passed through hundreds of these, thousands of them. We were driving through the countryside and this is what it looked like. I mean, for miles. And he told us, he pointed to one of the caves and he said in 1947, some shepherds, we're walking through these hills and they found a cave on a steep hillside and, and probably like every other cave, the, one of the shepherds threw a stone into it arbitrarily because that's what boys do. They throw stones in caves. But this time, it didn't sound like every other one. He, he heard breaking pots and he said to his friend, let's go in there. And so they went in. And they stumbled across the greatest find of the century, a mysterious collection of large clay jars intact with scrolls wrapped in linen. I think we have a picture of the, the two men, that, the shepherds that went through. There they are. They brought the jars to these antique dealers in the city of Jerusalem. And this university professor recognized the language and he said, where did you find these? And he organized an all-out archaeological search in those caves. And they began to find Hebrew manuscripts of the scripture 1,000 years older than any existing biblical text. 
They found 950 manuscripts in those caves. They were pieces of almost all of the books of the Old Testament. They found 30 copies of Deuteronomy. They found an entire complete copy of Isaiah, which was written in what they believe was 100 B.C. These were found in 1947, only 75 years ago, and these manuscript texts were almost identical to the translation of the Bible that you and I read today. And it's as if to me that the Lord said, these generations are going to need a reminder of how big I am. These generations are going to need a reminder of how faithful and true, of how much I want them to hear from me. And so in 1947, I'm going to have these two shepherds find manuscripts that he himself, probably the hands of God, held for us for thousands of years so that we could compare to what we're reading today and say, God, you are still true. You are still faithful. You are still good. Can we still believe the Bible is true? I believe today that we can say yes. I believe you need to equip yourself to be able to answer why. I'll close with this. Sorry, the Sadducees, a group of people in the Bible, they they didn't believe in the resurrection or in the angels. They said, I believe everything else but that. And you know what Jesus said to them in Matthew 22, 29? You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And what I believe he's trying to say to us in that is this. If we don't know the scriptures, if we don't believe that they can be trusted, it strips us from the ability to experience the power of God. And so the takeaway today is this. The thing I want you to share and repeat and remember, and and the thing I want you to, to look up this week, is that the Bible is a gift from God and can be trusted. The Bible is a gift from God and can be trusted. And so would you stand? Uh, As Pastor Quint mentioned in the beginning of today's worship experience, we set up some uh, prayer stations here in the corners. And if you're here today and you need prayer for anything that, that, that you need anything at all, would you just come and, and meet our trusted friends here? Um, or if you would say, you know what, I need faith to trust God and what he says. Or maybe you might be saying, you know, I want to know this Jesus that preserves scriptures for 2,000 years. Would you tell me more about how I can have a relationship with him? I, w- I just want you to come uh, and just talk with these guys and pray with them. We have Bibles up here and other things if you need a resource. They'll be hanging out there. There'll be a team here every week that you can have an opportunity to do that. So let me just pray for us today. Uh, Jesus, I thank you so much uh, that you would preserve your word, Lord, so that we could understand it, so that we could see it, so that we can believe that the Bible is true, Lord, so that we can trust you. And I pray today you would give us faith to trust what you say, that you would show us how your word can be trusted because, God, you are faithful. And, Lord, we can trust the author of your word. And so, God, we can trust the word. And I'm praying, Jesus, this morning that we can confidently say, yes, the word of God can be trusted. And Lord, that you would help us do the research, do the reading, have the conversations that allow us to be able to back up why we believe we can trust the word. And God, I'm praying that that 48%, that, that, that percentage of people that have said that they had faith, but, but they gave up on it because they didn't believe they could trust God. Jesus, would you reduce that statistic in Erie, Pennsylvania? 
God, would you use us to reduce that statistic? Would you use us to have intelligent conversations to help people understand that you are who you say you are, God, that you are who you say you are. And Lord, we can trust you. God, thank you for your faithfulness. And it is in your strong name I pray. Amen. Amen. Have an awesome week. We'll see you next Sunday.